This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Houston Astros batting coach Andrew Kresge. He discusses some of the key principles to batting and how players can develop this over time, the work he does around talent identification and how this helps him prepare for new players into the building, as well as some of his key coaching philosophies. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, Andrew, nice to have a, that's, I would say that's probably one of the longest catch-ups I've had prior to a thing, but discussed loads of good bits already, so I'm pumped for the conversation. Um, before we get started, how are things your end? Are you all good? Yeah, just uh, got, all the, got all the fun contract off-season stuff out of the way. Now I get to enjoy a little bit of time off before uh, we got to go back next year, so um, now it's all good. We always know as well that off-seasons aren't really off-seasons if you work in sport. You maybe get two weeks and then before you know it, you're getting bored and worrying about how to work with the players and stuff. So I'll let you enjoy the next couple of weeks and then I'm sure you'll be itching to get rare and going again. But um, for people that maybe don't know you, haven't come across you, etc., do you just want to give us a bit of an oversight of um, who you are and what you do? Uh, my name is Andrew Kreshi. Uh I am a minor league hitting coach at the Houston Astros. Um yeah, no, I've been at the complex level down here, um, worked in affiliate baseball for a little bit, uh, was over at driveline previously coached in college. So bounced around, um, played over in Italy for a short stint, which was a really fun experience, but, um, yeah, that kind of, kind of caps it off. Been in pro ball for, this will be my third year. Awesome. So for people that maybe don't have an extensive knowledge or background of, of baseball, what are, I guess, the roles of, of a hitting coach? What would your expectation be? What are you looking to do? How are you looking to develop the players? Um, I think for me, like, you know, going and focusing on, on solely hitting, um, kind of the evaluation process of it, I think, depending on the level. Um, obviously, down here at the complex level, um, you have some of the younger players, and some of these guys are phenomenally talented, but um, very, very young. So uh, kind of going through, um, you know, having that evaluation period, uh, we have extended spring training, um, which for me is, is almost like a, an extended off-season program that I get to spend time with these guys before like the games kind of officially count, um, even though it all counts. But, uh, you know, getting them, getting them ready, uh, having that extra cushion, which is awesome for development. Um, but it's heavy, heavy development focused for, for me for the most part. Um, especially being at the minor league level, getting these guys ready to go and, um, you know, potentially trying to vault them into affiliate baseball. And then ultimately, you know, um, if the, the stars align, the things they do work out, um, the work they put in, the talent levels enough, the results are there, you know, they, they get to the big league level. Yeah, listen, I think that um, I've seen enough books on the Premier League with the people that progress through to Premier League. There's recent statistics that come out that said how how unlikely that is. And I imagine baseball is very, very similar in, on that front. Um, yeah, the, uh, it's like we were saying before, like, I think that that is the, as, as different as the two sports are and the different as the two systems are, um, you know, the, the minor leagues and the academy system, you know, the idea that these guys are being developed and pushed up. Um, but also like, you know, the, the, the hit and, and miss rate I'm sure on players in, in the Premier League is, is probably just as high. Um, you know, unfortunately they, they're starting to mess with like the player cap here. So like they moved it down a little bit. I think it's like 100 and 
40 were allowed to have stateside. So, um, and they also reorganized the minor leagues a couple of years ago. So a couple less opportunities um, for, for guys professionally, which is unfortunate, but um, you know, the, there's a lot of talent that kind of shows that like how competitive and hard it is to, to climb up those ranks. It's not like the other sports here where generally you might have like a one team underneath them or like with football, like you go into the draft and these guys are added to the roster and they, you know, you're the practice squad or you play, or you're not in professional football at all uh, or American football, but like for, for baseball and, and the Premier league um, you know, you have those kind of like lower, lower tier teams where these guys are going to go kind of up the chain. Yeah, I guess from a talent ID perspective, and you're saying about the evaluation process, how does that look like in baseball? Because obviously in the UK, you have kind of some of your big hitters that by the nature of our academy system, they can go out and buy any players they want, particularly after Brexit in the UK, where um, you can't buy international players below 18-ish, something like that. It then meant your teams like Man City's, Chelsea's, etc., are basically going to go to clubs in the UK and go, right, who are the best players? We're going to try and buy them. Um, but majority of the time they'll look to fit within a, an idea or a brand or a way of playing. What does the evaluation process look like in the States? Is it, is it similar in terms of you guys have what you want from a Houston hitter or is it very much actually we're going to go really broad and we're going to, it's going to be by a, a batter by batter kick? Um, well, kind of like similar to there, at least there, there's like a discrepancy in the U S players versus the international players. So for players in the United States, um, you know, guys can get picked up via, you know, free agency. Um, if they're really young, obviously they have to go into the draft. Um, they can sign as undrafted free agents. You know, that is going to happen with guys that are after high school. And then I think it's after like your third year of, of college or something like that, you can declare for the draft. Um, and then internationally you have um, like a, in order to curb like, kind of that situation like we're just like that one team spends and just buys all the players like um they have like a a pool of money that you can spend uh international signing pool um so you know that doesn't happen um in terms of like the evaluation process it's it's pretty much like every team is going to have their own um kind of similar to the premier league like everybody has their own scouting department everybody has those things that they look for in what they may identify um whether it's like they're extremely technically proficient at a young age, whether they have really high like output ceiling, you know, wh whatever it may be that, that, that organization is looking at, um, you know, the, the scouting department's going to scout these guys up uh, in baseball. Uh, the Latin kids are getting signed at, you know, 16 years old, um, you know, coming and even before that, um, those, those agreements that take place and then they get them in there. Um, but they're going off to the academies and the DR and they get developed before they come stateside and are kind of put into the, um, the systems in the United States and then the high school national players and the college players that are drafted, um, you know, draft happens in, in July now, um, you know, and those guys, you know, it, it's the same deal. Like you also have a, a, an allotment pool of money that you can spend during the draft. So again, this way you can't just go out there and, and just throw money at everything. Um, you know, I, but even then, like, I'm sure like how many players are former, Chelsea Academy guys that are now in the Premier League for other teams. So, I mean, it, it, it somehow evens its way out. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because we, we get it quite a lot where players will leave one environment and then end up going somewhere else and thriving. Like, it's really, really common practice. Like, the Chelsea one's a really interesting example at the moment because they probably got rid of quite a lot of Academy players 
and have gone all in via Todd Bowley to try and get, like, I think they've spent a billion pounds in the last three transfer windows or something like that. And they've gone after a certain profile of player, which is youngish, but they similar to what you said you're not able to do in baseball, they're kind of doing, which is they're going, right, I'm going to buy this player, this player, this player, this player. We're going to hope that a few of them hit. And if we do, we'll be in a really good spot. So it's an interesting uh, strategy. Um, unfortunately, it looks like it might work having beaten Tottenham the other night. And I'm a Spurs fan, so I could have done without that. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting way of, of working. I think one of the things they have found difficult, and it'd be interesting to see how baseball copes with this, is the differentiation between uh, competition levels when you're scouting abroad. So, you know, if, if you're going to go and scout in the Ukraine, for example, that's very different to what, you know, the English Premier League looks like. Or if you're going to go and scout in Spain or Australia, all of these environments and leagues are very different in terms of standard and um, and whatnot, which often means an average player when they come across can look like an absolute world beater when they're in their native environment is that something that you guys get quite a lot if you're going to like Venezuela and you're you're seeing a player there that you're looking to evaluate where all of a sudden he's hitting every like a home run every single game but then when he comes across to you actually there's some flaws that um American pitchers are able to um yeah give him some challenges with is, is that something that happens quite a lot or have you got a process to be able to get you through that uh yeah now when it I think in that regard like and that's and that speaks to how difficult these sports are and how it like progresses level to level. Um, and you're, you're scaling kind of the idea of like, all right, what is the competition level that they're facing now? Um, are they just physically, especially when you're scouting guys that are that young, are they just physically mature enough that they're dominating based off of their current physical development? Um, are they, you know, technically proficient at, at that young of an age where they have that advantage, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't carry over. Like if they, you know, as everyone else ages and catches up to them, um, you know, I think that's, that's probably the question that, that most scouting departments deal with. Uh, Houston does a phenomenal job of scouting and player development. And that's why they've been able to kind of um, have the sustained success they've had um, in terms of playoff runs and, and reaching the championship series, at least before even the world series, um, you know, the success they've had, I think, you know, we, we like to talk about all the time. Like I think it's uh, there's a graphic that floats around social media all the time that, that kind of comes out every year come playoff time that shows the homegrown talent and development um, of every single organization. Houston is, has been at the top for like the last several years. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully I'm answering your question because I know that alarm <laughs> went off when you were talking. Um, but I think like you're, you're, you're trying to project a lot of these guys just similar to the, the kids that you do in the academy. Like, you're trying to find those things that you can project out um, and hopefully identify, um, you know, it, it depends on the, the team strategy. I mean, like you look, you have teams like the Yankees that um, or the Padres this past season are willing to, because of that failure rate, go out and just get the top guy in the international signing pool and, and just throw all of their money at that one guy. Um, and then there are guys, there are teams like the Houston Astros that will, you know, they spread that money out. Like you have a couple of big money guys, but you're not taking that whole, you know, five, $6 million allotment, whatever it may be, and just spending it on one player. Um, you know, the Yankees did that a few years ago uh, with Jason Dominguez, who reached the big leagues this year, had a really awesome debut. I think he hit like four home runs in the first week and a half he was in the big leagues. 
Um, his first game was against the Astros. He had a, he had a home run a minute, mate. but um, he was a guy that was like really, really hyped up, um, phenomenally talented. Um, and they just kind of threw the, threw the bag at him. They got him and it, it's worked out so far. He ended up tearing a ligament in his elbow and he was throwing. So he'll be out up until like, I think halfway of next year, but he's a guy that's, that looks like he's going to have all the success in the world. Um, but you know, again, like it, it, I think that's more of a testament to their development as well. Cause you know, you can get the most talented 16 year old in the world, but what's he going to look like in four years, you know, when he's a, when he's a grown man. So uh, I'm sure that's, would you say that's environmental specific? So would you say that people, certain clubs look for certain profiles of player, or would you say that invariably it's like, we're going to try and get the best player and hope that they flourish in our environment? I think that, I think that kind of similar to the Premier League, I think it's probably org to org. Like every, every organization is going to have their scouting department and their, their GM and, you know, the, the powers that be that are going to make those decisions. I think each of them have an idea of, of what contributes to success. Now, some of them might share those same values. Some, some don't, some might utilize different tech. Some don't like, um, I think it all depends on who's running the show and, and what their, their, their system of development is. Cause obviously like if everybody had the exact same thing, you know, all the exact same players will be signed, but you know, there's always those consensus guys that everybody agrees. All right. This, you know, this kid is, is fantastic. This kid's phenomenal. Um, but you know, uh, how often do those kids pan out? Um, and I don't think that's a, that's necessarily a shot at the process. It's just, it's hard to project out a kid and, and, and in baseball, we're doing it, you know, at like on the international end, if you're looking at guys, you know, in their, their 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that's tough. If you're a premier league team and you're signing a seven-year-old, like I'm sure that's like, even, I mean, come on, that's, that's, you're looking at over a decade before they're, you know, 17, 18 years old. And, you know, that's when they're considered a legal adult. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a kind of an interesting thing where like, I guess from your experience to kind of throw that over to you, like, what do you see in that regard? Like, is, is the miss rate just absolutely insane at that yeah. level? Yeah. In short, <laughs> it's madness. Um, like the, the terminology, well, I speak quite a lot to parents and stuff and, um, Jamie Carragher actually put a really good clip out on social media a few years ago and he his son actually plays for Liverpool um, yep. or did at the time and he said I basically don't ever say that he's going to play for a Liverpool football club he said it's incredibly unlikely that he will he goes whilst he's in the academy I'll support him I'll challenge him whatnot but I've never ever thought that he would play for Liverpool football club what I see it as is a private school education at football where he's going to get some amazing coaches. He's going to get some amazing experience and will enjoy it for as long as he's there for rather than focusing on the end goal. So for me, that's one thing I'll say to parents is actually it's incredibly unlikely that, you know, someone at seven is going to go the, all the way through the pathway. Equally, it's going to be incredibly unlikely someone at 12 in baseball is going to go all the way through the pathway and make it. But what you can do is, focus on how are they going to develop what skills are they learning for baseball and in life and um you know it, it gives them really good life experiences that hopefully will, will, will set them up along the way so yeah the, the miss rate in, in in football is particularly high so i think the more that we can focus on actually just having positive experiences in in the sport that they love doing is far more beneficial 
Um, because, you know, for some of them, under-13s might be the best baseball season of their life. That that like be in in reality, that might be the height of their achievement. That they have a really good year, and you kind of ride with that and let them experience all those positive things. So yeah, that's kind of the shift that that I have. There'll be others out there that are listening in academy football who disagree, going no, we we you know we, we should be striving all we do and telling parents to do all they can to get them to the very top. But that's I guess my perception of it because I think just the, the success rate of it is so small, as you said, like. It's yeah. 10 years before they are even close to being anywhere near men's football. So think about all the things that happen in your life in 10 years. It, it's yeah, such a period of change. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, I, you, know, you can tell me I'm a hitting coach with the Houston Astros and pro ball. I'd kind of laugh at you. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, 10 years, what was I doing 10 years ago? Like I hadn't even at that point, like, I like I had quit my job and moved to Italy to go get a degree in archaeology because I was annoyed with kind of the things I was doing. I was working in finance. I was I was coaching a little bit on the side, and you know, it, I, ten years is a long time. But yeah. you know, that's the problem here, and it's 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 the issue with youth development here is that the you know I'm sure that they they have this in um, in Europe as well, like the, the the private academies, the private club teams. And just the level of just the extreme level that they take these things, um, you know, like in the States, huge amount of money in these, in these private travel teams, um, you know, 10 U, 11 U, 12 U like circuit teams that are traveling around to these like national tournaments. And when in reality, like you're 10 years old, like the, the development part of, of them just having fun is like that, that is paramount. Like, nobody is going out and signing a 10 year old. Nobody's going out and signing an 11 year old. Like, and the, the, the system in the United States is, is a little broken in that regard. Um, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I, you know, I, I saw how not to, to an extreme degree, but you know, my, you know, your, your parents want you to succeed. They want you to, um, you know, they, they think the world of you and they think you're always going to be like the best at whatever. And like, you know, some parents are a little bit more honest with their kids and, and expectations, but, you know, I think that that gets sold to a lot of parents really early is they're like, oh, you know, your kid's phenomenal and you're going to do this, this and this. And, this. and it's in reality, it's extremely hard. And nobody wants to tell a kid like, OK, you know, you want to be a professional soccer player. You want to be a professional baseball player. All right, you're never going to do that. But like, I think the, the the priorities of those of those systems, like you were saying, like have to be kind of shifted a little bit and not tell a seven year old that like and his parents, oh, this kid's going to play for Liverpool. And it's like a lot can happen in a, in a decade, man. Like kid could just stop growing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm five, eight. As you said, there's so many factors into it that actually, if, if you do turn around and say, Oh yeah, you're definitely gonna, gonna make it. I think there's selling false hope. And I guess one of the differences we we're beginning to see it come into the UK, but it hadn't previously is these pay to play models um, in terms of, you know, academies and stuff. Some academies, I'm not going to tarnish everyone, but some, they have a vested yeah. interest to tell you how good your son or daughter is because you're paying them and the better that you make them feel and the better you feel like there's chances, the more money they're going to make. So it's kind of like you need to find the good ones where they, they have the, the interest of the children at heart to allow them to progress rather than someone just saying to you oh, how amazing they are and then, you know, 
obviously just wanting some more some more dollars in the back pocket, which is um, a, a challenge I think is going to come. One thing I think this topic of conversation is really interesting for, um, and I guess you can speak about it predominantly at the top end for where you are now, but it's probably consistent for those who are listening along the pathway, is what would you say some of the key characteristics of a good hitter are? So if I was to say to you now, you know, if you're watching the top level or those that are having most success in minor leagues, what would you say some of the key characteristics that make them good at hitting are? Um, you know, I, th- I think if you look at the the like the younger prospects or just like in general, who's having the most success, like I think um, you kind of look at. And, there, and there's different ways to succeed, right? Like the, not every player is exactly the same because if there's one way to do it, everyone would do it. There'd be one particular player everybody would look for. Um, there are skills that, that scale though. And like, obviously you're looking at, you know, on the bat speed exit velocity. So the, the velocity of the ball coming off the bat, how hard you hit it. Um, that output ceiling is, is going to be a huge indicator of, you know, success in terms of margin for error. Um, you know, your ability to put, the bat on the ball, your bat to ball skills, what kind of contact are you making? Like how flush are you hitting the ball on a consistent basis? Um, your ability to put the bat on the ball. Um, and then kind of your decision-making process of what you're choosing to, to swing at, um, like the value of the pitches you're choosing to swing at. Um, obviously in baseball, um, kind of slightly similar to cricket in the sense where, you know, you have the strike zone, they have the wickets, but like, um, you know, with the fact that, you know, you're getting that three strikes to work with the fact that you have the, the, you know, the four misses of a ball um, results in a walk and you, you get on first base, um, you know, looking at those skills and then also just like the physical development as well. Um, you know, like I was saying before, I'm, I'm five, eight, like you get a guy that uh, like Jordan Alvarez for, for the Houston Astros, that guy's enormous. Like you look at a guy in terms of physically how they're developing um, and how much of a window that allows them for that output ceiling as well. And again, like it, it it's more so bigger than just simply, oh, that guy's huge. You can hit because for every, again, if you look at the the two probably biggest outliers in, in baseball, in terms of like body composition and size, you have like Aaron judge with the New York Yankees, who's like borderline, like seven feet tall. And then you have Jose Altuve with the Houston Astros, who's like, like my man's like five, five or something like that, five, six, but he is a phenomenal hitter. He has a huge level of output, um, but he leverages that in, in different ways. So I think it depends, but like looking at those kind of three skill specific categories, and then also just like what kind of um, force output do you have? You know, those are going to be indicative of potential success. Now you can have all the things in the world if you can't get them all to work in tandem. I mean, it, generally, if you look at those three things that we talked about, like, um, you kind of need two of them. Um, it's really tough to, to, to get away with just one. Um, you have a huge output ceiling, but you make horrible decisions and you can't hit the ball. You know, if you can hit the ball, but you make horrible decisions and if you do hit, it, it doesn't go anywhere. Like, so I think that probably for me, like how you would go about judging success in terms of who could potentially be there. And how measurable are those things? So you look at, obviously we discussed the development pathway, um, one thing we actually caught up off, off air about was like the maturation station uh, status of people coming through the pathway. You might have one 13 year old that looks like me and has got a massive beard and you know is, is six foot two. And then you've got another that hasn't even reached puberty yet. And, um, you know, might be challenging 
when they go through puberty in terms of hand to eye coordination or force output or velocity speed and stuff so how measurable are those things number one and then two in terms of like bat speed and, and velocity of exit and whatnot how reliable is the data you get from a talent id perspective um from like a i guess a u.s high school compared to maybe a dominican republic high school compared to an international school over in japan is it comparable or is that like again one of the minefields you have in talent id in terms of that type of information that's coming across um i mean to tackle the first part about that i think it it depends there's like a huge scale on those guys i mean we have a <clears throat> excuse me we have a uh we have a couple high school draft picks this past year that i kind of get on their case because they look so young and i call them children um, and then we all, I also had like a, a guy who was, who played for me, not last season, the season before, and he's like 21 years old, but he had, he kind of has a beard and I joke all the time that he looks like he's 35. So I'm like, you know, you get the varying like ranges of guys in their development. Um, but you know, the, the thing that the Houston Nationals did very well in terms of the player development aspect, especially with the, the strength and conditioning, um, is they, they get the most out of these kids and, you know, the, the turnaround and, um, you know, development on the skill end development on the strength end, the nutrition end, like, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So these kids, um, not necessarily always mature physically quickly because like, that's not always up to the, the, you know, anyone else, but, you know, kind of life, but, um, you know, getting these guys on the right track, they do phenomenally well, uh, which speaks to a lot of the success that they have. Um, in terms of like measuring those things. And that's the nice thing about baseball um, for, for good and bad is, is you can, you can measure everything. Like um, now the accuracy of that data depends on what you're using to, uh, to measure it. Um, you know, bat speed, there's, there's bat sensors, um, you know, professional baseball. Uh, now they have, they have Hawkeye. So all of the, the, the professional fields are, um, are covered. Uh, in terms of collecting basically every piece of, of information that they can, um, you know, swing decisions, um, you can, you know, every team has their own way to judge that. Um, you know, there's also public resources that do it in a, in a slightly different fashion, um, contact skills, a million and one different metrics to do that. Um, so like all of these things are collectible, but kind of like we were talking about before, like it depends on the environment that you're having it in. Um, you know, the baseball is such a reactive um thing it's it's why like you can you can go out and and draft a, a pitcher from a division three two school if you know they have the the shapes and the velocity and the things that you believe can scale versus like a lot of those like lower level hitters from when the competition's really low like you know they're not going to get those looks because the competition which they're facing and reacting to is not at a high level um you know as a hitter i'm i'm, I'm facing what is what is being thrown to me. Like I'm not really in all control of, of, of what is happening. Um, so, so it depends on the competition level and things like that, but all those things are, are definitely uh, collectible. Yeah. I think that's a re really interesting dynamic around that because as you said, like the varying levels of data um, and, and football, it has come in more and more. We're seeing Brighton in the premier league, uh, um, I think their owner or someone in their higher up in their club did a lot around betting and understanding the the, the scale the around X, that the XG model. Yeah, we've well, got a little bit around the XG model, but also people like Salcedo and stuff. They've gone and found out in Colombia and have 
some way got some statistics on him to suggest that he's come good. That's why they went from Basuma to Salcedo, who both obviously subsequently left. So I yeah. think analytics from from a football perspective are becoming more and more interesting. The bit that's, I guess, more interesting for me is how, as a coach, you use them. Because you've got all this data that you can work from and you could go, okay, I'm going to go down a completely data-driven model. But actually, that probably doesn't work for players in real life. But also from a player development perspective, you actually probably need them to have more skills than just what data is flashing out. And one of the best lines I had from this is actually um, a guy called Ben Bartlett who works for the Houston uh, Dynamos. So over your end, he's an English guy who's gone out there and he yeah. says that his work is um, data guided, which I thought is a really nice, nice terminology in terms of he he takes data in consideration and then that guides what his practice and stuff looks like. Um, and that might be like repetitions of particular shots or when we're doing session designs about getting players into certain areas of the field that are replica- replicable to where they're going to score goals or where goals are created or you know, types of set pieces and how that then leads to more chances over over a period. From your guys' perspective, how does um, looking at that data help you from a uh, like a player development piece? So if you've got all these new draftees coming in or, you know, you're in the off-season now, I'm assuming you're going to get to a point in the off-season and go, right, this is probably a collection of players that we think we're going to have in the building unless someone trades them or someone comes in. What what type of process would you be doing to look through it? And then what would you, from a personal perspective, be going, right, I'm going to try and work on him with his pitch IQ. Here's some strategies. I'm going to help him do that. Well, yeah, from a personal perspective, what does that look like for you? I mean, I, I, I think I really like that, like the the, the data guided, because I think that's that's a more accurate description of it. And I think that's what gets lost in the, and, and like we were talking about before, the, the kind of fight of, like the, the kind of data driven guided coaching strategy versus like that more traditional where they both kind of like butt heads with the other because the other is wrong. Cause X, Y, and Z um, in reality, you're it, it, it's, you're measuring something and you can measure whatever you want. It, the idea is, are you measuring the right things and how are you leveraging that data? Um, you know, when we have guys come in just like every other org, like if, if you're collecting data on guys, um, you know, whether you're in the scouting department, player development department, um, you know, or just any kind of performance improving uh, position, like you have to know where you are um, because you have to know where, where you're going. And then in terms of like the, the data you're collecting, you know, are the things that you're doing working? And the only way to know that is, to, to, to measure your results, to make sure that like, okay, like you're building validity and like, all right, I'm doing X, Y, and Z, you know, X and Y work because he doesn't, we're not getting the results that we need. There's no improvement there. And like, so we know we're not wasting training economy doing that. Um, because not everything is, is going to work with certain guys. Um, so again, like if, the, if there was one way to do anything, you would just shove everybody into the exact same model. Now there are things that like, like you talked about skills at scale, like, all right, I know that, you know, building a guy's, bat speed up is going to raise his, his ceiling. Um, you know, we want to live in that 80, 90% window of intent because at hundred percent we're sacrificing way too much accuracy with the bat. So, okay. Like how can I push that ceiling as high as I can? So that 80 to 90% threshold we're going to sit at 
is where we live. Now, how am I going to relay that information and build that program around this specific athlete versus this specific athlete uh, in order to achieve that? And I think that's the part of it that, um, you know, is, is going to get the most bang for your buck. Cause anyway, anyone can measure anything, but how are you implementing that data? And I think the, the guy from the Houston dynamo, like you're saying, like, I think it's probably the best way to put it. Um, especially like the time that I spent at, at driveline before coming to the Astros, like data driven development, not necessarily like, all right, I'm just staring at these numbers and then I'm solely going off of, you know, bucket this bucket that like you are going to do this exact thing. It's like, no, cause some things do not work. People move differently. Guys learn differently. The communication part of it, like we talked about before, like, you know, you could be the greatest player in the world, but if you can't, if you can't communicate this information to players um, and make it digestible, it, it doesn't matter. And I think that's something that, um, you know, for me in particular, like I try to educate the players as much as I can in terms of what these metrics mean, um, why they're beneficial, why we're doing anything. And I think that it comes to the coaching thing that, you know, I think you can, you can agree with as well is that like, I, I tell players all the time, like, if you come up to me and you have questions, you whatever ask, like ask why, ask why on everything. I don't care because if I can't provide you with an answer, we, we shouldn't be doing it, especially at like the professional level. Like I, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's your career. Like, so if you, you know, you don't like something, ask me why. No, that makes sense. So I'm going to give you a bit of a hypothetical here. So apologies because I haven't given you this in advance. It might take a little bit of scrambling to figure it out. But say, for example, you've seen via the data that you've got um, a, a newish intake, someone who's come out of college, third year, so they're coming into your minor league program, and you see that they struggle with off-speed pitches both inside and outside of the plate. Um, which I sh- more so from a like picking it point of view in terms of they're not able to see it and swing at it when they shouldn't be swinging at it because it's not a particularly strong area for them. How yep. would you go around creating a program to help them develop that area when they're with you? Because obviously it's something that other minor league teams and if they do make it out far, major league teams are going to look to exploit because it's a weakness that everyone is aware of. Yeah, what would you do from a personal perspective? How would you look to develop that with the player what type of programs would you put in place what type of processes would you do to try and help them develop that i mean i think like anything like you're you're identifying that all right you've identified with the with the the data that you have that like there is an issue like this guy has a lot of trouble hitting hitting breaking balls like you're saying um it's going to depend on on the individual because you're looking through and you're like all right well why do they not have success you know is it a movement issue is it an approach issue um you know, in terms of the movement side, like, do they not sequence well? Do they not, you know, transfer their weight as they're, as they're in their forward move? Um, you know, from an approach perspective, like, are they just sitting fastball all the time? Like, and especially with younger guys, like you try to ask a lot of those questions because, you know, the, the, the intent is, is going to drive them. So if they're always just hunting the fastball all the time and just like launching themselves the ball, like, um, you know, that's going to result in issues. Like if they're guessing, like it, you'll hear the most wild things. Like I'm sure, you, you know, you, you coach younger guys, like you ask some younger guys, no matter how talented they are questions sometimes. And the responses you get are kind of like way out left field. Like I've, I've had guys come, come back from, you know, younger guys come back from the plate after, uh, 
you know, an, an unsuccessful attempt, let's say they, you know, they struck out and um, it kind of went against the, the plan that we were discussing. And, you know, I might kind of joke around and be like, Hey, you know, what happened? And because they're young, you'll get that. Like, I have no idea. And you're like, all right. Like, <laughs> so I think like context is going to provide uh, a lot of information in terms of like the route you want to go, but also just leveraging the data, leveraging um, the video, um, you know, movement data, things like that. So it, it's going to depend, I think, depending on the individual and like what may be wrong, um, you know, you could go in a lot of different avenues, but um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, things like that, like that's going to happen all the time with younger guys, especially as the competition gets better and better and better and better. Um, you know, the, the secondary pitches are better. The fastballs are faster. The, the shapes are better. Um, the execution of those pitches is better. Even, even with the, the accuracy issues of major league baseball, I think the average miss for a pitcher is like, it's like 14 or 16 inches. So, um, even at the highest levels, like balls are not always going where they want to go, but the stuff is, is significantly better. I still maintain, I think baseball is one of the hardest games to play, particularly as a, as a batter. I think it's madness. The speed that comes in at and you've got to react to it and not swing or swing and stuff. What was really right. interesting, right. you meant, sorry, say that again. No, I was going to say, that's why I, I try to, especially with the younger guys and even with the older guys, like it, it, it is hard, it is phenomenally hard. And I, I kind of, I try to minimize the, what they're doing all the time just to give them the perspective. I was just like, ultimately, like you're trying to hit a ball with a stick. Like there is a ball moving in different shapes at different speeds. And it's going to be thrown into this imaginary little square and you have to hit it with a stick. Like that's really hard. And like, I think when you minimize it like that, you know, you kind of make a joke out of it to be light, but I think it, it brings up to them, at least in my, my, my attempt to do it is to just kind of make them realize like, the difficulty of the task at hand. And especially with a lot of these kids that come from, like you were saying, like backgrounds where they're just dominating the people around them. And then they get moved up to a higher level or now they're in professional baseball or the people around them are soon. Like the game gets harder as you go up. And it's, it's why like some of the most technically proficient players don't always make it to big leagues. Like, and you know, mentality and how you deal with failure. Like we, we talked about before with the ego part of it, like, you have to have like a bit of an ego to play any level of professional sport because like the failure rate, especially in baseball and, and uh, Premier League football, like you're coming up to these academies, like the people that you're surrounding yourself with, you might know the, you might think one of your teammates is the best player you've ever seen. And they don't make it past, you know, for you guys, like the, the 12s or the 13s or the 15s or the 17s, they might never make that, that Premier League roster or like here, they might never make that big league roster. You might be in AAA for that might be as far as your career goes. Um, so you, you have to have that, that kind of, that ego a little bit, just with how often that you fail to know that like, you know, a, a week's worth of horrible shitty games is not going to define, you know, your skill level of what you're doing. There's something in that minimalist bit as well. Cause I do it a lot with my kids in high pressure environments. So if they're going to a game that means something right, against a really hard opposition. So, um, I don't think anyone would disagree with this. Southampton, obviously, are, are a good category, uh, one academy. But when you come up against you know, Man United's, Chelsea's, Cities at times, they can be really challenging for the boys. And the terminology I always say to them is, just remember, it's a bunch of kids from Manchester with a bunch of white lines and a football. And like, like you said there, I, I feel like something 
that has been really successful for, for me is being really primitive with it is describing it in almost like its most basic form that you can. And it, like, I see the kids almost go, actually, that's a really good point. Like you're not playing against Raheem Sterling or Harry Kane or Mbappe. In your case, you're not playing against Stanton or Otani or Bryce Harper or anything like that. Like you're, you're playing a kid in another minor league environment that lives currently in Philadelphia or Washington or wherever that may be so I think that I don't know what it is but I think something in that minimalist minimalist bit is really interesting because I think it resonates quite well with the players around yeah and especially with baseball it's like it's it's not a it's nothing's in continual motion like if you're hitting you might get four plate appearances a game to go up there um and you know if you fail you know, the first three times um, you're sitting on that as you go through the game and then you wait your kind of turn to go hit again, you know, whether you're playing in the field, whether you're DHing and you're just in the dugout. Um, and, and for a lot of younger guys and even, even guys at the big league level, like that, that's hard. Like you can kind of start to uh, snowball into, you know, failure can happen a really long time. I can hit the ball a hundred miles an hour. I had, I had a kid last year, two years ago uh, when I was in, Fayetteville. And I, and I love this kid. He's phenomenally talented. Um, but he went through a stretch in the month of, of uh, August where he just like had statistically like box score stats. I think he had like two hits and they were both like homers, but in terms of like the, the bat of ball data that he had and the metrics he was putting up, they were phenomenal. They were the best of his entire career. He was just literally hitting the ball at people. Um, and I think that kind of to tie back into what you were talking about before with, with the metric side of it, and the data collection, you know, being able to communicate that with him um, allowed him to, well, yeah, he's kind of pissed that it keeps happening, but it didn't break him. Like he started laughing at some, at, like at some of these things, because he would hit the ball like 105 miles an hour to the wall. The, the metrics for the batter ball were phenomenal. The expected metrics for those batter balls were phenomenal, but like you had some guy running into a wall to make the catch, or he's just like nuking the ball in a straight line, right at somebody standing there. And like, especially with shifts and things like that in the outfield. And, and this was slightly before, or maybe it was when they, they banned the, the infield shifts, but like, you can't help that. The, the random, the randomness of like, I'm hitting a ball with a stick at 106, 107 miles an hour. And someone's just standing there. Like, um, so I think like going back and, and kind of being able to, to communicate that data with them, like, if he continues to do that over a long period of time, like he was just extremely unlucky for that month, but like, that's something that will scale eventually. Like you're just going to hit it at someone who is not standing there. Um, and that's something that like being able to be okay with that makes all the difference in the world because the perspective of failure versus I did exactly what I was trying to do. It just didn't work out that time. And I think that's something, especially at the younger levels that I try to push on them is that like, what is success? Um, if it's simply always getting a hit, you're never going to be happy. And even then, like you can get away with kind of the dinky, I clipped the ball on the side and I flipped it over the shortstop's head. And, you know, did I make good contact? Did I make a good decision? Probably not. Um, so being able to like coach around those ideas. So when that does happen, the kid can laugh and you can be like, all right, I got away with one. Or if you nuke one and you do everything, that you, you make the right decision, you make solid contact, you hit it at the velocities you're looking at, um, but it's an out. Yeah, you're pissed, but like you know that you have done something that was successful. So I think that's 
where like the data piece of it, and I know I'm jumping back to like previous, previous questions you were saying, like, I think that's, that's the side of it that is going to be the biggest part of the development process for these younger guys is like being able to understand what success looks like in a game where like by every metric you succeed, but the most important one to them, like in terms of like the box score itself, like you don't, you don't get. Oh, to be fair, you answered what my next question was going to be. It was around the failure bit. So you, you managed <laughs> to jump ahead without me saying anything, which is amazing. I guess just around that is how do you get buy-in from teammates or parents and whatnot? Because, you know, I'd imagine sometimes when parents are, correct me if I'm wrong, are going, you know, we want to see box scores so that they might have a better chance to make that jump to single A, double A, triple A, you know, major leagues and stuff. They might purely focus on the box scores and what's good, what they can tell their friends and, and family of an evening. How do you get them to focus on more the, the process and actually understand that, listen, he's actually doing everything right, just needs to keep doing what he's doing and eventually the trend will suggest that it's going to be an upward trajectory or the other way where you're having success now, but we're telling you failure is going to come. You've got to accept that unless we make some adaptations, it's going to drop off because you're not going to be able to sustain, you know, hitting a homer every two at bat. It just isn't going to be sustainable. No one can do it. Um, so, yeah, how do you get buy-in from, I guess, teammates for one? Is that a little bit easier? And then friends and family and stuff, uh, secondly. Um, to jump on the last part about that first, I think, like, you're looking at, you know, I made, I made the goal, you know, for, for me particularly, I made, I made the goal specific metrics that were around, uh, the batted ball profile of what we deem successful, not the outcome. So like, it was like that kid going back to a couple of years ago, like he was doing everything barrel in the baseball. There's, there's a metric called barrels, um, which is basically uh, high end velocity within a, um, a specific launch angle window. The, the harder you hit it, the, the bigger the window. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. Um, it's very indicative of uh, the carryover from year to year is, is very indicative of talent. So like, if you're doing those things, like you're going to be successful. Like, yes, you might run into some bad luck, but in terms of expected statistics, just like the, the, the XG model or X assist model for, for football, like these are things that while you may have only scored five goals, your XG says like 15. So we know that you're doing all the right things. Just things are not happening the way they should, because at the end of the day, like, just like football, like, there is some, some luck involved. There's some randomness of, of things that are happening. Um, so in that aspect of it, like being able to look at particular things that are indicative of future and long-term success is the biggest thing. Um, and that's what I try to focus on. Like, yes, we're celebrating the homers. Like you're celebrating all those things because, you know, A, that's they're achieving what you want to achieve. When you get away with something stupid, we're still going to celebrate it anyway because they're young and like this – who's to say their career only lasts another year or two years or three years. So it's like, you're, you're working for the short term and the long term. Um, you know, mostly the long term with the level that I'm at, but at the same time, like you have to have them enjoy and celebrate the, those wins in in the immediate, because like, you're going to lose the future buying if you don't, um, you know, I, what I, there was a, one part of the season, I bought a giant orange cowboy hat and that was our, like our home run thing was that every time they hit a home run, they got to wear this, like, it was like a 20, 25, I don't know what it was, like the gallon, like cowboy hats. It's this massive foam hat. Um, and that was just something dumb to just like, because at the end of the day, like these guys, no matter how much money they have, like they're 18, 19 years old. Like 
20, 21, like they're, they're high school, college kids. And no matter if, and there are some of them that I certainly believe are going to be big leaders within the next few years, they're still doing something extremely hard. So, so celebrating those short-term wins with the eye towards long-term goals is, is, is going to be huge and it's going to achieve that buy-in. Um, and then to hop into like the first part of your question, I am lucky enough that I do not have to deal with parents, um, you know, professional baseball, you're, you know, I don't, I don't deal with any of that. Like I, I've, I was the director of a, um, uh, sports nonprofit in, in the kind of greater DC area. So I, I had that experience where I was involved with parents. Um, I'm thankful to not be involved with parents anymore. Um, and that's not to say that, that there weren't some great ones, but, um, you know, there, there are certainly some parents that I love talking to and, and had the right idea and were bought in, but that's probably one of the more difficult things. If you have to deal with that on the, on the, within a pro organization is the expectations of, of parents for their kids. Cause it's like, we talked about kind of before we hopped on the call is that like, and, and rightfully so every parent wants what's best for their kid. They think the world of their kid, some are just slightly more delusional than others, but um you know, especially with you dealing with guys that are like that young, like if you have ideas of grandeur where it's like, all right, my seven-year-old is going to be the next David Beckham. But then again, like David Beckham's father was like, that too. so, um, you know, listen, I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan. So what I'm about to say isn't leveled in a little bit of bitterness, but at least you don't have to deal with Kawhi Leonard's old man. Like apparently San Antonio had to, um, yeah, because that caused some problems when he forced his way out to Toronto. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. One one thing I'm I'm trying to get better at is actually how can we get them as part of the team? So rather than having that dynamic of like you bring your child and we're going to work with them and we're going to set some homework, which they're going to do, it's like actually we're in this as a three, really. So what are the, what can we be held accountable for? What can you put on us as a coaching staff, as an organisation? What can the child be accountable for? What are we going to put on them? What are we going to challenge them with? And then equally, what is the parent accountable for? What are they going to think? And even if it is, I'm going to film them for 10 minutes practicing in the back garden. It gets you as a team rather than an us and them. So that's something that um, I think longer term can definitely help in that space. And what you mentioned around the using statistics to change the success criteria, I think it's a really nice one. And that's something that actually I'm going to reflect on from the back of this call, which is, you know, when, when working with those older age groups, removing like your XGs and all the obvious stuff, is there group specific success criteria that we can have that are link into our IDP targets or our values as a group? So if it's number of regains in the final third, or number of block shots or something like that, whatever we want it to be, but actually just shifting what success looks like just so that there's accountability towards the process, but also their understanding that we value that at all times. And the, you know, we, the development piece for us is always going to be prominent because we're getting statistics that can back up what, what we're asking you to do. Yeah. And I think like, and, and that's like a big question too, like with, I think most organizations, in, in pro baller ask themselves is that like what like what is the directive of the minor leagues especially at those lower levels like are you developing to win or are you developing by winning like there are certain organizations that will just be like we have to win every single game and that's how we're, we're going to develop in our process of of trying to win 
And then there are teams that just go, all right, we're looking to develop. And that if we win, it's going to be a byproduct of that development, which are kind of slightly two different things because it depends on what you value. Um, and, you know, for me, the success that, that I've had here, I think that's something where we focus on like, sure, we're trying to win. Like, cause if you don't like a it's professional baseball, like, you know, you don't want it to be treated like a rec league, but at the same time, like it is not the end all be all. It is like, we know what we're, we're looking to do and we're looking to build skills that scale so that they can have future success when they get called up. Um, so that kind of developing, developing leading into wins is, is something that, um, you know, that, that I've had success with here. I mean, you know, there, there are other organizations like the, the Tampa Bay Rays, I'm pretty sure or like they, they play to win and it's, you know, they're going to do everything they can to win. And that's how they're going to develop through that. Um, you know, the, the Yankees and, and the Dodgers win a huge amount of games at the minor league levels. And, you know, I don't, I'm not going to speak to the, um, the directives they had, cause I, I don't know. Um, but you know, they've also had some phenomenal people in there. Um, I know Dylan Lawson was the director of hitting for the Yankees for a long time. And all those young rookies that are coming up went through him. Um, so like whatever they were doing, a lot of success there. So it, it depends on the org itself, but like, I think that brings up a good point where it's just kind of like, what are you using to achieve those goals? And like, what is the ultimate directive of like the, the lower levels? Like, are you developing and that is all that matters? And if you just win, you win. But at a certain point, like if you don't win enough games, you're going to start to lose interest in the players you have. So it's, it's, they all kind of just feed off each other. Like if you're winning at all costs and you're not developing, that doesn't work. If all you're doing is developing, but you just happen to not really win games because you're not taking that next step after training and, and putting in game kind of atmosphere, then you're going to like lose them. So it's, it's like a weird, you got, you got to, you got to figure out what the medium is. But yeah, uh, no, thing, like you're, you're spot on. I mean, you know, it, it's easier to have them be part of the equation than to, to boot them out. I mean, like they're spending more time at home than they are with you. So if you don't have them on board, like you want to make sure the things that you're working towards are universal in what these kids are doing versus like only when they're with you and then they go off and go do something else. No, that development winning piece is a fascinating one. And, I, you know, it's one that we have over here all the time. It's like, actually, do you, do you develop winners or do we develop skills that hopefully help them win? And what does that look like in each environment? And for me, it links back around to what the questions I was asking at the start a little bit around talent ID as well. Because I think some kids and, and players will thrive in the win at all costs at all time environment. And actually that's how they'll develop because they can link it to the why, which is to win. And you can say to them, listen, you need to put extra hours in going and focusing on this pitch because that's going to help us win and they'll go and do it. Whereas there'll be other kids that need the space to go and practice without the pressure of winning so that they've got the skill which they perceive nailed before they then have to worry about the winning piece and they want the space to be able to do that. So uh, for me, I think it's all about getting the right players in the right environment to allow them to flourish rather than going one's better than the other. I think it's just yeah. getting people that are suitable for it. I'm conscious of time. So um, a couple more questions. Uh, last one. Uh, really on this before I go up for a personal one, which is um, looking forward into, you know, current current trends in baseball. What do you think the next 
a gold standard piece of development work might be within the baseball space. Obviously, you know, been a lot of transition, as we mentioned, over a 10, 15, 20 year period. Is there anything you think is on the horizon that will really aid players in their in their development from from what you've heard about, what you've seen or where you just think a, a little crevice might open up that people might begin to explore? Uh, I mean, I can't. <laughs> uh, you know, certain things I, I won't. I was going to say, say don't, don't stitch yourself up here. <laughs> do, don't do anything. Uh, yeah, no, no. Certain, do, but... certain things because I'm, I, I work for an organization. There's certain things that I'm, you know, obviously can't give out the, the secret sauce, but uh, no, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's like that idea that, you know, once certain teams got into the, the data driven aspect of, of development um, it's, it's spread and, you know, they're seeing the value in, in measuring these things um, in order to, you know, get baselines to shorten the feedback loop to develop players. So I think that's only going to get um, more details, obviously, as, as things move up and especially with, with Hawkeye um, that major league baseball is inputted and, um, you know, kind of every stadium at the major league level. And then, you know, teams have it at the minor league level and um, being able to get these data points from, from, you know, the, the bat of all data to the spin data on pitches to the biomechanics data on the field. So, I mean, like having access to more um, is going to lead to that one team finding that thing and exploiting it for the, the year or two you maybe have before everybody catches up. I mean, um, you know, I remember when, when Houston, you know, got into the, um, the, the spin efficiency, high spin rate, fastballs at the top of the zone, you had guys like Verlander and, and Garrett Cole when they were here having huge amount of success and then everybody started to catch up. So it's like the, the window for advantage in, in professional baseball. And I don't know if it's like this in the Premier League is, is, is pretty short. Like it's a very, it's a copycat league. Uh, it's why like, <laughs> it's why you can't really like throw out like any wild theories when you work for a pro ball team, because like every team's looking for that next edge before everybody else catches up. Um, you know, so whether it's on the pitching end, the hitting end, the fielding end, um, the base running, everybody got really onto this, uh, this vault stealing thing, which is essentially like, you know, just have that stationary position. Um, like the, but then again, like the bases were bigger, like they're trying to figure out how to take advantage of the pitch clock. And so every team is looking for that, that next thing. Um, but on the hitting ends, um, for what I, for what I will say, I mean, I think that like having access to that more information is going to open up a lot more doors to looking for the next big thing that you're trying to exploit in order to either drive success at the major league level or drive, you know, development at the lower levels in order to, to create more player value and, and to create those guys at the, the top level. I got told at 18, the best coaches are the best thieves. So for me, I think oh, yeah. you're spot on there. Go and steal what someone else is doing, adapt it slightly and use it as your own. Um, and then last question for me, which is um, if I were to speak to any of the players that you work with, how would you hope they described you in three words? Oh, uh, I don't know if it's three words. I think I, when you asked me this question the last time, I think I didn't even know how to answer. Um, you know, I, I would just hope that they, they recognize the amount of, um, amount of effort that's put in, uh, the dedication that's put in and, and the, the goal into making them successful. Um, you know, for me, I've, I, I will be all in on the players and, and, you know, no matter what their signing bonus is or their level within the organization, I've, I've tried to go 
above and beyond to make sure that each of these guys not just receives the same value of coaching, but like my, my job is to, to make the players better. It's not individual players. It's not just this guy. It's, you know, my job is to make them better outside of that. Like I, I can't be concerned with anything else. And um, that's one thing that I hope that the, the players recognize as well as the fact that, um, you know, I'm always available to them. I told them, I said, you know, if you ask for extra work, the only time I'm ever going to say no is if I feel like it's um, kind of a workload issue. Um, I'm always willing to have those conversations with them and be honest with them. And um, especially those older players, but also the younger players, because making sure that they're educated in um, the meaning behind the metrics, the, the, the goals that they have, that they understand, because it is their career um, kind of making sure that they're empowered to say no, if, if they don't agree with something, but also be educated in the sense when the, in the off season, if they're off on their own, um, you know, they, they know that they have an understanding of what they need to do, why they need to do it. And they can kind of uh, take that next step in maturity and, and be, and have a, a real hand in their own development when, you know, I'm not kind of standing next to them kind of deal. 100%. It's their journey and we're just a little, uh, little bit on it. So, but yeah, Andrew, listen, really good conversation. I think we've been going for about an hour 45-ish now, hour and a half. So granted, some, some of it's been filmed, the other bit is just for us. But uh, yeah, okay. really appreciate your time and um, we'll definitely stay in contact. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.